This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Mark Frazier. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and we're really excited that you can join us today. Today, we're going to be talking about the latest in Parkinson's research, um, particularly the latest advancements that have occurred in the last 12 months. I'm excited we have a great set of panelists today, um, so I'd like to introduce them to you today. Um, first, welcome Dr. Beata Ritz. Dr. B Ritz is a professor of epidemiology, environmental health sciences, and neurology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Our foundation has funded Beata for her work around pesticide exposure and, and links to Parkinson's disease. Welcome, Dr. Ritz. We also have uh, Dr. Erfan Qureshi. Uh, Dr. Qureshi is vice president of neurology at Biohaven Pharmaceuticals. He's a board-certified neurologist and a physician scientist with years of experience in research and patient care. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Qureshi. Uh, and finally, we have Marianne Fioretti. She's joining us from Connecticut. She's an active community member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Marianne was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2010. Thanks so much for joining us, Marianne. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. So as I mentioned, today is our annual year in review webinar. And what we'd like to do is highlight the latest progress in, in Parkinson's research. Uh, we do have a lot more to cover than we have time in this um, hour or so, but we'll do our best to get as much, as much covered as we can. We're gonna be talking about some of the latest technology advances in Parkinson's disease, talk about some of the latest treatments and some of the news that have come out in the last 12 months as well as understanding what causes Parkinson's disease and uh, environmental exposures that may lead to Parkinson's disease. Patients are at the heart of everything we do. So um, in order to be successful and in order to develop new treatments and ultimately a cure, we need you, which is why we're so thrilled that everyone is joining us today. So let's dive right in. Um, we'd like to start just talking about the latest advances in treating some Parkinson's symptoms. And before we talk about the recent results, I'd like to start with, by just asking Marian just to talk a little bit about her symptoms, what uh, bothers her, uh, and her uh, path to diagnosis. Marian, can you talk about your disease? Certainly, Mark. Thank you very much. Uh, as you mentioned, I was diagnosed in 2010. Uh, luckily, I feel like even though it's been close to 11 years now, that I'm doing quite well. Uh, I don't have tremors as that, that seems to be the uh, normal or the standard that people look for in Parkinson's. But what happens to me is if I have off episodes, I have problems with my movement of my feet. I, my feet sometimes feel like I'm uh, in cement block shoes or something, or even things like uh, crossing through a doorway where I get into a, I almost freeze. And my husband says, are you gonna, it looks like I'm gonna tilt to something or fall over. Uh, luckily, uh, sleep has not been a problem with me. I seem to be able to sleep quite well through. Uh, but one of my big pluses is my exercise. Uh, I've always sort of exercised and throughout my life, but when, once I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, exercise became very important to me. Uh, I took back in 2015, I did the Tour de Fox. I started off where we did a hike up Mount Mansfield with my daughter. Uh, I've since then run 5Ks, 10Ks, uh, Rock the Ridge up in Mohonk, Chicago Half Marathon. Have not done a marathon yet. I'm not sure if I'm up to it, but you never know. A few more years, I might give it a try. Uh, but, you know, just in general, I would say my main things is my freezing gait and getting the stuck with my feet, the shuffling. 
thanks, Marion. And uh, congratulations on all the fitness accomplishments. And certainly there's a lot of research that suggests that exercise really can slow the progression of disease. So um, I think that's fantastic that you're able to do all of those activities. Um, you mentioned um, so-called off episodes where um, you feel stuck or frozen. And there's been a lot of advances in um, novel technologies and new treatments to treat some of these off episodes when drugs wear off and are not as effective. Um, Dr. Qureshi, can you talk a little bit about the latest we've seen in um, those advances and uh, perhaps some other um, treatments for Parkinson's disease symptoms? Yeah, hi, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me and thank you to the foundation for having me. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to talk with you all today. Um, there have been really exciting progress in Parkinson's disease research that we've seen over the last year. Um, there is quite a lot going on, both in terms of what we call symptomatic treatment or treating the symptoms of Parkinson's that people have today, as well as stopping Parkinson's disease tomorrow, uh, what we call disease modification. Uh, I just started at a very high level. Uh, there are approximately 170 therapies that are currently being evaluated in clinical trials. That's an amazing number, 172. Um, and of those, about 39 of them are in late stage trials, what we call phase three trials, which is uh, really important because the, the next step after a successful phase three trial is really to try to go and talk to the FDA and to get drugs approved so that uh, they can benefit people out in, in the community. And so I want to start first talking about symptoms, uh, and particularly hard to treat symptoms, as Marian just talked about, uh, things like gait and things like uh, off episodes. And there have certainly been a, a lot of advances over the last year. I'll highlight a few of them. First, I, I want to focus on uh, advances that are related not to medicines or to drugs, but to other kinds of therapies. And I'm going to focus on two of them. One is called focused ultrasound. And this is something that's really exciting. Uh, ultrasound is a technique which a lot of people have heard of or had ultrasounds. But focus ultrasound is a way to really target in a very specific way, specific brain regions that may be involved in Parkinson's disease. And focus ultrasound was first approved for patients with Parkinson's disease who have tremor in 2018. But recently over the last year, the FDA has also approved focus ultrasound to address other symptoms of Parkinson's disease which are stiffness and dyskinesias. Those are those involuntary movements that some people with Parkinson's disease have. Um, and so that's a really exciting new potential therapy that is available for people. We also have advances in deep brain stimulation. Uh, DBS or deep brain stimulation is uh, important therapy that's been available for more than 20 years for people with Parkinson's disease. Uh, it is a surgical treatment where a device is implanted, and that device helps to control the electrical signals in the brain uh, and to reduce some of the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, including things like tremor uh, and stiffness. And it's really exciting that the progress over the last year that we've seen uh, with DBS allows people to personalize their DBS therapies much more so than in the past and allows people to do so while, uh, you know, sort of being at home and not necessarily having to have as many visits to the doctor. In the past, you would get DBS and after the surgery, have many visits with the doctor to fine tune that DBS system. But nowadays you can, with these exciting advances, do more of that at home. So where you have a Wi-Fi connection or cellular connection, you can really use that to uh, program or refine the DBS with your doctor. So that's really, really exciting. 
In addition, um, we know that the one of the ultimate goals is to continue to refine the therapy. And I want to highlight one of the initiatives from uh, the Fox Foundation, which is the Registry for Advancement of DBS, the RAD-PD Registry, which is a way to continue to learn more and have more exciting advances in the future with DBS. So I'm going to move on now and talk about medicines or, or, or pharmaceuticals uh, that can target symptoms of Parkinson's disease. We were talking about off symptoms, that is motor symptoms, things like movement slowing down, having more tremor, et cetera, which can occur for people. And there are some exciting new advances uh, for medicines on that front. One example is a medicine which is an extended release form of levodopa uh, that is new, that was studied and has positive phase three data. Uh, it, that study showed that people who were taking the extended release levodopa, that this new formulation compared to the standard levodopa had better uh, outcomes. They had less off time with fewer dosing, so three times a day rather than five times a day. So I think that's one example of the advances we've seen over the last year. There are quite a few other potential symptomatic treatments as well, both targeting the motor symptoms, which include, for example, additional forms of levodopa, better delivery, more personalization, uh, and, and one example of that is subcutaneous pumps that deliver levodopa continuously for people. Um, but it, the focus is not only on motor symptoms. There's a whole bunch of non-motor symptoms, which I'm sure um, you know, different people experience uh, in different ways. Those can include things like issues with managing blood pressure, uh, issues with constipation, things with cognitive and behavioral issues. And there's a broad range of therapies which are available that target, um, you know, in, in clinical trials, these different kinds of symptoms. And the hope is to, to progress those so that they become available for people. And I'm just gonna highlight some of the mechanisms, the, the targets of those different medicines. Uh, for the motor symptoms, it's really dopamine. That's the, the chemical neurotransmitter in the brain that controls movement. Um, we also have some other targets, including glutamate. That's another neurotransmitter that controls movement, as well as GABA, G-A-B-A. -A. GABA is uh, another neurotransmitter. And there are various medicines that are being studied that target these different neurotransmitters for the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. There's also the non-motor symptoms, which I mentioned, and there are various potential medicines that are being studied. Uh, they target other brain neurotransmitters and chemicals, which we call acetylcholine, epinephrine, and serotonin. So with that, I'll take a pause uh, and, and hand it back over to Mark. That's great. Thanks, Erfan. Um, that's wonderful. You know, I, I would make two comments. One is that um, some of these uh, delivery approaches are not using necessarily new medicines. They're the same chemicals, but they're engineering different ways to deliver them. And um, while you might think that not that may not be impactful, it's it's remarkable in some of the research that's been published how these engineering approaches really can improve quality of life, reduce off time. Etc. So I think that's been really exciting to see some of these new uh, engineering approaches or formulation approaches in Parkinson's disease sort of march their way to approval. The other uh, comment I was going to make was just um, around the uh, non-motor symptoms that you mentioned, cog cognition, depression, constipation, etc. Um, the foundation has really made a concerted effort to fund research in this area um, and targeted researchers and solicited um, applications for funding. Um, and in the um, 
2021 year in review that you see here on the screen. You can access this through the resource list. There's a really nice description of some of the projects and uh, trials that have been funded out of this, um, th these funding programs. And so there's always opportunities to participate in the research, and we'll talk about that um, in a moment. But um, if you're interested in learning more about some of these uh, non-motor treatments that the foundation is funding, I encourage you to um, uh, look into this urine review. Um, before going on, Marian, I'm curious just on what, what you heard from Erfan. How do you, uh, how, what are you, what excites you about some of the developments that you've heard about? Um, I, th I think to the extent that I can still continue taking the carbidopa, levodopa, uh, as opposed to uh, there's, there's some other drugs out there that I've tried to stay away from because I was concerned about compulsory behaviors that they might be uh, attached to and that people have concerns about. Uh, but just the, I guess, the mode that it is going to be, uh, th that I would receive the dosage in, uh, because oftentimes right now, if I, if I don't plan my meals properly, if I happen to have a burger or something and then all of a sudden take my meds, I'll be off kilter for the next hour or two because it doesn't get absorbed properly because I have that conflict between is my stomach and my intestines going to absorb the medicine or the protein? And for some reason, mm -hmm. I take the protein first. That's something that I'm you know, interested in. Yeah, so Mary, that is exactly what Mark was talking about, right, with these novel delivery systems. It's not a, necessarily a different medication, but the delivery system is way better with some of the newer technologies because I think everybody with Parkinson's experiences exactly what you were talking about, the regimen being personalized, being affected by what they eat, um, and the better delivery systems we can get the, the, we know that the levodopa is really our main treatment for Parkinson's disease motor symptoms. So that's mm -hmm. why there's so much emphasis there. And I'm glad to, to hear that you, uh, you feel that way as well. Yes. Uh, Dr. Karashi, we have a, a question from the audience before moving on just about um, the difference between DBS, deep brain stimulation that you mentioned, and focused ultrasound. And, you know, certainly the decision on um, these types of treatments is a personal one um, that involves conversations with um, indiv their individual doctor. Um, can you just talk at a high level about the differences between these two approaches and um, potential strengths and limitations? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, I would echo what you said, which is the you know, for whoever is asking the question and others who, who have the same question, talk to your doctor. They're probably the best person to answer all the details. But at the high level, um, the differences are that deep brain stimulation is a surgery, whereas focused ultrasound is not a surgery. It's a non-invasive type of procedure. There's no anesthesia, et cetera. So, both are trying to reduce the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. With focused ultrasound, it's a single treatment that aims to target the cells with beams of ultrasound and turn those cells off. For DBS, there's an implantable device, electrodes that go into the brain, and those electrodes can be fine-tuned over time um, and so they're just very different. And what may be right for one person may depend on their personal preferences. It may depend on what the disease symptoms they have. And so I would encourage you to talk to your doctor about the specifics. Yeah, great. Thank you, Arafan. A landmark study that could change the way Parkinson's disease is diagnosed, managed, and treated is recruiting participants now. PPMI, or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, needs people with and without Parkinson's, especially people aged 16 up who have close relatives living with the disease. Take a short survey today at michaeljfox.org PPMI to see if you're eligible. That's michaeljfox.org PPMI. So 
This uh, was covering a lot of the advances in treating Parkinson's symptoms. And of course, why we exist is to go out of business and really ultimately find a cure or uh, treatments that slow or stop the progression of the disease. And there's been a lot of advances um, in um, our understanding of the role of genetics in Parkinson's disease, um, and these have led to uh, actual drug development programs that are targeting some of these proteins that are linked to the genes. Uh, and, and 2021 was an exciting year. There's been some uh, reports of new uh, findings, new clinical trials, and new opportunities to develop treatments that slow or stop the progression of the disease. Um, this slide lists a couple of those um, new advances. And I, I'd like to ask um, Erfan if you could just highlight perhaps some uh, of the uh, reports that you're particularly excited about. Yeah, absolutely. I think as you said, Mark, um, there are many researchers around the world who are studying Parkinson's disease to better understand the disease. And, and everybody's ultimate goal is to go out of business to find a cure for the disease. Um, and, and really the first step in that is these kinds of exciting scientific discoveries from genetics and other approaches, uh, including some of the genetic consortia work that is funded by the foundation. Um, and I, I will say a few words about the disease modifying treatments, the treatments that are currently in trials to stop the progression of Parkinson's disease. These are really very different than some of the types of medicines that I mentioned before. The goal of those medicines is to reduce the symptoms. The goal of these trials is to prevent the progression of the disease. It doesn't necessarily make symptoms go away. Um, and, and it does that, these therapies do that by targeting the underlying cause of the disease. And so, as Mark mentioned, we have learned a lot over the past few decades about the genes and the proteins that are involved in Parkinson's disease. And so I'm going to highlight three of those. One is called alpha-synuclein. Alpha-synuclein is a protein you might have heard of. It deposits in the brains of people with Parkinson's disease, and it's believed to lead to the death of the neuronal cells. And so that is an important potential target for therapies. There's also a gene and protein called LARC2, L-R-R-K-2. Uh, LARC2 is a common genetic um, risk factor for people with Parkinson's disease. Um, and it's another target that's very exciting where we've seen advances with potential therapies progressing into the clinic. Uh, and then lastly, I want to highlight a, a gene and protein called GBA. Uh, GBA, again, like LARC2, is a genetic risk factor for Parkinson's disease. And so for each of these three genes and proteins that I've mentioned, they've been exciting advances in the science and in ways to target these genes and proteins. Uh, for alpha-synuclein, that's one of the most exciting. There are 13 potential therapies that are being advanced. And these therapies span vaccines, so really uh, you know, exciting technology to reduce alpha-synuclein deposits. Um, as well as uh, small molecule kind of therapies that are aimed to dissolve some of these deposits, as well as protein antibodies, which are designed to stop the spreading of these deposits. So really exciting science we've seen go forward over the last year uh, targeting alpha-synuclein. We also have exciting therapies that are targeting LARC2. That, that is a, a gene which has been linked to Parkinson's disease. And so there are studies that are for people who carry that gene. In addition, there is some belief that even people who don't carry that gene mutation are at risk and 
you can still reduce Parkinson's disease progression by targeting LARC2. So there are studies with LARC2, two of them that are ongoing, two compounds. And lastly, for GBA, there are at least four compounds that are progressing in clinical trials. So you can see there, there's a really exciting group of compounds that target different aspects of the disease in a very targeted way. Um, but there are other approaches too. Um, we know that there are some general mechanisms that are probably relevant in Parkinson's disease. Those include things like inflammation. They include autophagy. Autophagy is a fancy word that uh, means the housekeeping uh, sort of uh, that occurs inside the body, inside the cells. Um, there is oxidative stress, which can damage genes and proteins and cells. There's therapies that target the mitochondria. The mitochondria are really important uh, parts of your cell. They are the uh, energy factories that, that drive uh, your, your cells and your especially your brain cells. There's also cell therapies. So for example, stem cell therapies or other approaches. Um, so there's quite a lot that's in the pipeline. As I mentioned, when we started more than 172 unique compounds with 39 in late stage phase three development. And we're really hopeful about these progressing uh, and showing us positive data. Wow. Yeah, that is a lot, as you say. And I mean, one takeaway I think that I have is just the momentum um, in this space is really unprecedented. Um, the diversity of targets that you talked about that are being attacked for uh, a disease-modifying treatment for Parkinson's disease, the diversity approaches, whether it's gene therapy or a small molecule or vaccine, um, it's really a robust pipeline. Um, I also like to remind everyone that, you know, these trials that are being tested for new treatments in um, humans or clinical trials, they are experiments. And so it is unlikely that every trial that is in um, clinical testing will work. Um, but one of the things that the foundation does is work with researchers and groups developing these treatments um, to share data, share information from both trials that are successful and trials that may not have been uh, as successful or met uh, their expectation. Um, really because every experiment we'd like to learn from. And so I think it's important uh, as a community to appreciate that um, not everything will work in clinical trials, but certainly um, something and, and likely many things will be learned in every clinical trial. And, we like, and that will just improve our ability to um, develop treatments going forward. So that's exciting. Um, so I'd like to switch gears a little bit and um, bring Dr. Ritz into the conversation. Um, I mentioned uh, Dr. Ritz is a world-leading expert in understanding the role of the environment and how it might contribute to Parkinson's disease. We talked about a little bit about some of the genetic learnings that have occurred in the last several years that have led to uh, new treatment strategies. But we've known for some time that there, uh, genetics doesn't explain everything in Parkinson's disease, and certain environmental factors may contribute to developing Parkinson's. So before going to the latest research, Dr. Ritz, can you just summarize kind of what we know in general about the role of the environment in Parkinson's disease? Yes, so um, the story is actually a fairly short, even so I've been spending tw almost 25 years of my life on it. Um, I have been concentrating on pesticide exposures um, from the beginning. And I think the uh, what we know scientifically about pesticides and Parkinson's is probably the most solid. Next in line, I would, and I'll explain in a minute, uh, next in line, I think, are some metals, especially lead exposures. Uh, there was a very good study out of Harvard and a few other studies that um, showed that lead exposures uh, have, are a risk factor for Parkinson's, increasing the risk almost twofold 
It's long-term lead exposure. The Hubbard study did actually bone lead measurements. And that was important because the bone stores the lead. And so they had a really long-term record of lead in the body of elderly men. That was the normative aging study, uh, mostly veteran males in Boston. And recently, one of my junior colleagues developed a very good marker for this bone lead in the blood. So long-term, because the blood lead is really a short-term marker. But we, we believe we now have also developed a longer-term marker or can use it. We, we used it in my studies. We used it in a very large uh, study that was available publicly in Australia. And these, these lead measures, these tibia bone lead measures, actually were predictive in the same way that they were in that Boston study. So lead is definitely something we need to keep out of our environment. And, you know, we all think, okay, we, we took lead out of the gasoline, maybe we are done. But there's a lot of legacy lead out there in the world. Um, a lot of um, airplane uh, fuels are still leaded. And they're distributing nicely about urban areas, um, <laughs> you know, these kind of exposures. And there are legacy um, uh, oil contamination. There, there's a lot, you know, pipes, lead pipes, etc. So I think we still need to put our um, uh, our feelers out to, you know, what else can we do to avoid us being exposed long term to lead. Um, the the third one that I think is new uh, is actually air pollution, and it, it kind of fits lead very well because part of the air pollution we're talking about is particulate matter, and that's combustion related. It comes out of the tailpipe of cars and ships and airplanes and power stations, so combustion-related particles. But part of this air pollution is actually also metals. And where are the metals coming from? Break and tire wear. <laughs> and so if we're talking about the impacts of traffic, of air pollution, um, of transportation, we always have to also think about um, how, how soil is resuspended, how brake and tire wear contributes metals, and we're breathing this. And, you know, it's, it's definitely, we know these metals are neurotoxic. We've known for a very, very long time that heavy metals are neurotoxic. And now we are, the, the difference is that through the, through the breakdown and the grinding up of these particles, they become so small that we can inhale them. And when we inhale them, they may get stuck in the lung, but then the lung transports the mucus up and we swallow it, and then we're in the gut. And through the gut, you know, we can be exposed to all of these things that we are breathing in, even if it's not going in through the lungs. And finally, I think we also need to pay attention to organic solvents because there are some really important studies out there saying that organic solvents are not good for your brain. And we are using um, solvents very heavily in, in industries, but you know, you can also find them um, as byproducts of, of a lot of other uh, common um, uses. And they are not very good for your brain. So what do I know about pesticides? Well, pesticides are, by tonnage, uh, apart from pharmaceuticals, the largest intentionally introduced chemicals near humans in the world. And why is that the case? Well, we want to grow our crops, and we want to keep insects from eating them. And we want to kill the weeds that otherwise would displace our crops. So we have a good reason to do this. However, we engineered quite a lot of these pesticides to actually be neurotoxic because they're supposed to kill those pests, right? And how do we kill the pests? Well, we harm their nervous system. So it is very well known that organophosphates, for example, they were introduced first as, uh, as nerve agents in World War I, and then we developed from there, from serine gas, we developed all of the offshoots of organophosphate pesticides. They're not as toxic as serine gas, don't get me wrong, but they're toxic to these little insects. And then the question is, how toxic can they become to bystanders? 
people who apply them, but also bystanders standards. And and the problem with a lot of these pesticides is yes, they're not acutely toxic in the same way to you as they are to insects, but what about long term exposure and you know, do you harm your your brain one cell by by one cell and we know that we only have a certain number of neurons in the substantia nigra where all the dopamine is made that you need and every cell we are losing there is one cell too many right so chronic long-term exposure we should be very worried about and anything that can get into the brain or that harms the brain in maybe even an indirect way, which is the immune system. And so these pesticides have shown, quite a few of the pesticides are not just known as acute neurotoxic like the organophosphates, but some of them might just be immunotoxic or, you know, do something about your immune system not working all that well. And why is that important? Well, we have the gut. And for some of you who already asked these questions, there is recently more and more discussion about what the gut does that is relevant to the brain. And all of the Parkinson's patients on this line will know you probably have some gut issues, you probably have some constipation, or you had some constipation. And these autonomous nervous system related um, symptoms, we think it's the, the vagus nerve related symptoms, they are very real and they are very much Parkinson's disease and specific to Parkinson's disease. And so what is it in the gut that, you know, might be related to these symptoms? And one focus recently has been the gut microbiome. And why is the gut microbiome so important? Well, because it's kind of another organ of ours. And why am I saying that? It is, it is just like we have a second liver in our gut. We have a huge amount of organisms that are breaking down food for us, also breaking down toxins for us, but possibly also generating toxins. And we are just starting to learn more about how all of this happens and how maybe the microbiome is what can help or harm us depending on whether it generates toxins or breaks down toxins for us. And that leads back to the question about what about the appendix? Well, the appendix is known as an immune organ, but the appendix is also known as harboring probably the microbes that you want to keep in your body when once you wipe out with an antibiotic your your gut microbiome for a week or two what probably recolonizes well the the, the rest of your your uh, colon is sitting in the appendix so the appendix is kind of a holding tank for this microbiome that should be helpful to you However, it might also be the organ where inflammation starts and where inflammatory reactions can go back and forth and stimulate um, immunologic and inflammatory mechanisms in your body that then affects the brain and is not good for you. And therefore, the appendix has become one of the uh, interesting organs now to study and see how it contributes to po possibly risk increase in Parkinson's. But there's very little out there. We don't know much yet. It's fascinating, 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 work. fascinating work. What do we know about exposure earlier um, versus late and how long it, one needs to be exposed to certain toxicants um, in, to increase the risk of uh, something like Parkinson's disease? Excellent question. <laughs> we, we basically don't know. However, if, if you conceptualize um, that it is really a game of numbers of how many dopamine neur neurons are left making dopamine, and we all know very well now that you can live and not have any Parkinson's motor symptoms uh, up to the time when 60 to 80% of these neurons are gone. 
60 to 80 percent. So there's quite an excess capacity in in the substantia nigra to produce enough dopamine. And probably those colleagues who survive, those cells uh, who survive, are doing double duty and maybe getting more stressed about this. So you can think about a scenario where very early in life you got exposed to a pesticide for some reason or other that really did harm your substantia nigra neurons, so maybe 5% died, but you're left with 95%. So those go happily on until what age where they start to fail. And then every every leftover capacity that you have, you need. So I can easily see that it is bad for you to lose that 5% in use because you don't have enough capacity left once you get close to that 60 to 80% deaths of your neurons. But you can also argue that that same pattern could happen late. You know, you're 65 and you're now exposed to a high dose of an agent that kills these neurons and that pushes you over the edge at that time. But we all believe it's a long-term process in the end. Right. It's not instantaneous. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it takes the entire Parkinson's community to develop cures. We certainly need people with Parkinson's to volunteer for research. And this could be drug trials, but it could also be research on environment and different exposures. Um, one other way that you can be involved is um, the foundation is ha- has a campaign to eliminate um, par- uh, Paraquat, which is a pesticide associated with Parkinson's disease. Um, and if you go to the resource list on the box on the right, you can um, click a link to, to uh, contact your lawmakers in the U.S. Um, to advocate for banning Paraquat as a pesticide used currently in the U.S., so let's move on um, to, I, I just want to talk briefly about um, PPMI, the Parkinson's Progression Marker Initiative. This is another way that the community can be involved in Parkinson's research and developing new treatments. Um, the, PP, the PPMI study is a global landmark study collecting lots of data from people with Parkinson's and people without Parkinson's. Um, The study has been going on for 10 years, and the goal of the study is to develop tools that can be used to develop new treatments. These tools are called biomarkers that are indicators or measurements of the disease. And these tools can be very informative and helpful in determining whether a new treatment is working or not. Um, The study has been in existence for 10 years, And it is undergoing an expansion um, to find thousands of individuals around the world to participate in this study. Everyone is eligible to sign up for this study. You can visit this uh, link that you see to um, answer some questions. Um, There's actually an online component that everyone over the age of 18 is eligible to participate in. And then as you answer more questions, you can determine if one is eligible for um, the uh, advancing study and actually visiting uh, research centers to contribute additional data. Um, There's actually going to be a whole webinar about PPMI, what we've learned and the expansion of this study in December. So I encourage you to sign up for that on December 16th. So I mentioned PPMI uh, is focused on biomarkers, and uh, we haven't really talked about that in this webinar, and I thought it would be useful um, just to ask um, Dr. Qureshi to um, expand on why biomarkers are important, and then I'd like to share some latest uh, developments in new research tests for and biomarkers. Uh, Irfan? Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, this is such an important Point. And, you know, the Fox Foundation through PPMI is really, I, I think, hopefully going to transform how we think about Parkinson's disease and all the people who participated in, in the PPMI and those that will in the future. Uh, I, I think everybody knows uh, that the, the journey of someone to get to a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is not a straight line. 
it can be really hard once you go to a primary care doctor or an orthopedic doctor or some other kind of doctor to eventually get to a neurologist or a movement disorder specialist. Um, and it's often not at the first visit, but maybe at a later visit that the diagnosis can be really confirmed. And, and why is that? And for Parkinson's disease, we don't have a blood test that very easily you could look at in everybody and say, oh, you have Parkinson's disease. We don't have a radiology test, like an imaging scan that we can just send people for and say, okay, you have Parkinson's disease. And so when we talk about biomarkers, we're trying to really find that very special signature of the disease so that we could do a test when somebody walks into the office and say, you definitely have Parkinson's disease. And I would go even further and say, you know, in the future, we don't want to just cure Parkinson's disease. We want to prevent it from ever happening. And these biomarkers that are being studied in PPMI will help us to diagnose people before the disease even occurs and the symptoms show up in people. And that's really, really, I think, going to transform a lot of how we think about Parkinson's. We want to start thinking about prevention eventually, right? Prevention is always better than cure. Um, and so that is around this issue of diagnosis. But there's a whole second issue, which is related to once somebody has the disease, how do we know if a medicine we give them is working or not. If earlier today we in the webinar, we talked about disease modifying treatments that stop the progression of the disease. And currently in clinical trials, when we try to evaluate that, we use clinical measures. We examine people, we watch how they move. And that's really important, but it would also be very nice to have a tool that's a blood test. I'll think of it like a cholesterol test as an example. When you give medicines for cholesterol, you then measure cholesterol and you say the cholesterol is lower and you know the drug is working. Or you say, well, I need to increase the dose of the medicine because it's not working well enough. And that's what disease progression biomarkers will really help us to do. It will help us to advance these therapies in an exponential kind of way. Yeah, it's it's really exciting to see some of the developments in having these measurements and indicators, um, and even the possibility of finding individuals before Parkinson's symptoms develops. And that's why these more objective markers are are so important. I I thought I'd just highlight a couple of um, projects that the foundation has funded this year um, uh, as examples of these objective biomarkers. And uh, these are early in development. There's certainly some that are a little bit later stage. You can read more about this in the year in review under the research re resource list. Um, but just two examples here. One is this device. Uh, it's called the Emerald device that is a box that you can put in your home. And um, it collects information just based on a Wi-Fi signal and actually can track individuals' movement and their gait patterns, um, their response to medicines, um, just in the comfort of their own home without the um, person having to wear any, any uh, wearable device or anything. So this is a really exciting technology that um, we supported the, a pilot study in a small number of people with Parkinson's to just determine whether it can detect symptoms of Parkinson's disease. It turns out it can. And uh, we're excited to support a larger study to really understand um, how this device can objectively uh, uh, gather information and track information about this Parkinson's symptoms and how uh, the symptoms develop over time. The second example um, is a really novel uh, uh, example of a, a biomarker, which is in the oil of skin. Um, so the story behind this uh, project came out of the um, UK, where uh, a wife of a person with Parkinson's 
actually um, detected a difference in um, how her husband smelled and detected a scent that was different. Um, this was several years ago, and it led to a lot of research um, that confirmed that there, uh, in in a small number of individuals, the sebum or the oil that's released from skin, there seems to be a difference in um, people with Parkinson's compared to people without Parkinson's. And now some of the uh, laboratory experiments have identified um, the actual chemicals that seem to be different. And the Fox Foundation is supporting a larger study to uh, uh, build the data set and confirm that some of these chemicals in skin um, in the skin oil are different in people with Parkinson's. But you can imagine how easy of a test this might be if it were scaled uh, and available in a laboratory setting um, as a potential diagnostic. So these are very early, you know, kind of innovative new um, tests that are in a research setting, but the foundation uh, supports these early cutting-edge technologies in the hopes that they will eventually lead to um, more standard tools and biomarkers. Okay, I've talked about how the um, you can get involved in research. I talked about how you can get involved in advocacy and um, in advocating for removal of pesticides. Marion, I, I do want to ask um, you to comment. You mentioned Team Fox. You've been involved in a number of different ways. It does take the entire Parkinson's community to develop new treatments and cures. Can you just share a little bit about your experience with getting involved and how it's helped you and what you've learned from it? Yes, very gladly, Mark. Um, as I said, I was diagnosed back in 2010. Initially, I didn't speak about it to much of anyone. My daughter actually was the first person that joined Team Fox. And we started uh, in 2011, we ran our first fundraiser, or she ran our first fundraiser, which was a bar event that happened on the snowstorm or the blizzard of Halloween that year. But we were still successful. People didn't want to leave the bar, actually, to go out into the snow. <laughs> uh, but in addition to that, the exercise piece has uh, been very critical. You know, just running 5Ks or 10Ks or half marathons or Rock the Ridge, it's not just the physical part either, it's the camaraderie of the people. Uh, I have made, met so many fantastic people who I can now call friends and, you know, some of them probably closer than my family. Uh, so that's been very critical. Uh, in addition, I've, I'm involved with the Fox Insight online which is essentially, I think I have my 17th visit coming up right now, which is essentially, it takes a little while, but they ask you a series of questions based upon uh, how you have been managing for the last 30 days or so. Uh, but it's, it's helping them to accumulate data in terms of symptoms and how people are managing. Uh, and then in addition to fundraising, as I mentioned, uh, that helps to raise money so we can pay for this research. Uh, and I, I just, Team Fox is very upbeat, very knowledgeable, uh, and I couldn't have asked for a better place to get involved with. Wow, that's great. Congratulations. Um, you clearly are doing many things, uh, raising money, participating in research, building awareness, and that's uh, just fantastic and glad to hear that it's been so helpful. Um, I do want to remind everyone that you can post your questions in the box. Um, we're going to just take some of those questions now. Um, the first was around how to find studies. I've talked about participating in research. Um, and the Fox Foundation, Marion, I'll ask you to comment on how you found different studies. Um, but the, before doing so, I'll just uh, put in a plug for the uh, foundation's website called Fox Trial Finder, which is a matching tool for uh, people that want to sign up for research but don't know where to find it, you can punch in, uh, type in a little bit of information about yourself and your zip code, and then you can see different trials that are occurring in your area that you may be eligible. Um, but obviously not everyone is eligible for every study. But Marion, can you just talk about how you've found different studies to participate in? Uh, I think you took the words right out of my mouth, which is the <laughs> Fox Trial Finder. That's been very uh, critical. Uh, and PPMI, I wish I could have been involved with it, uh, but unfortunately I can't directly participate because of the length of time I've had PD as well as the medications that I've been on. But it's still open for people who 
do not have PD or in the very early stages? Yeah, it's a good point. And certain uh, research studies are looking for a very particular profile of person, whether it's um, how long they've been diagnosed or certain symptoms that they develop. But you're right, um, the expansion of PPMI, what's called PPMI online, is actually open to anyone over 18. So um, we're excited that that has expanded. We've got a question um, about environmental exposure. And, and this is a difficult question about whether someone um, knows whether they were exposed or not. Dr. Riss, how would you advise them on um, whether they've been exposed and, and also are all of the exposures a bad thing? Right. Um, so first of all, do you know whether you were exposed? Well, if you handled a pesticide, you probably knew that you were exposed to it. But what I have been uh, working on for the last 20 some years is actually bystander exposure, meaning you live in communities where everybody around you uses these pesticides and some of them are volatile enough to travel miles and you can you can test them in the air and you'll find them miles away from the place of application so you know that anybody closer will definitely breeze the stuff um that said in california you can find out because we have what's called a pesticide use reporting system in all commercial applications which includes farmers but it also includes uh, golf courses right-of-way applications by the state they are all in this electronic registry and so ideally you could actually go online and find out what's being sprayed around you um, that is not the case when you go outside of California. In, in Arizona, I, I know only of one other place, Arizona has a pesticide use registry, but it's not publicly uh, available to the public. California is trying to make all this publicly available. And in my mind, if we are talking about introducing so many chemicals into our uh, environment, then we should hold the industry that does that also responsible for paying for surveillance of what's happening when humans come in contact and non-intentional contact with this. So I think we need to advocate for exposure registries and the California registry has been working for more than 40 years really well. We need them in other places. Um, with some agents, it's easier. For example, lead. Yes, you could actually have your bones tested for bone lead. Uh, it takes about an hour. It takes a special machine. It's not cheap. It's, uh, but you could find out, you know, what your bone lead um, measure is, how much lead you've been exposed to. Uh, within the last 30 years, that's that's definitely possible. Whether that then helps you answer your question is another question. But you 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 for for lead, it's possible. For pesticides, unless you use them yourself, it's not possible. And Great. then, is everything bad? <laughs> Good question. Um, we hope it's not, uh, that, you know, the environment generally is also good for you. We hope that, for example, sunshine is good for you and vitamin D. So go and do, take that walk and maybe don't put sunscreen on unless you are prone to melanoma, which we know, unfortunately, Parkinson's patients are at a slightly increased risk of developing melanoma. We don't know why but it's a very, very small risk. So I think uh, some exposure to the sunshine to get your vitamin D would be very good and to get your exercise at the same time. And I totally agree. The one thing we know that prevents, or not prevents, but slows it down maybe is exercise. Great. Thank you, Beata. We're getting a lot of great questions. Unfortunately, we're at the end of the hour um, and so I think we'll have to adjourn. I, I do want to remind everyone that there is a lot more information um, in the uh, resource list and links to um, reading materials that cover a lot more than we were able to cover today. So um, please check out those links. Um, I want to thank you for being a part of the community, the Parkinson's community, and for joining us today. We hope you found this information useful. I also want to thank our panelists. Uh, thank you, Beata. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Erfan, for 
uh, sharing your insights and expertise today. Um, we'll be linking uh, a link to the webinar, sending a link to the webinar uh, that you can watch on demand very shortly, or if you'd like to share it with friends uh, or family as you'd like. Um, as I said, I hope you found this information useful. We wish you a wonderful holiday season with family and friends, and thank you for joining us. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.